Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Science of Feeding the World. This week we speak with insect chemical ecologist Dr. Joe Roberts, who is a demon brassica plant identifier and (laughs) insect lover. I'm not very good at introducing Joe, but trust me, it was a very good episode. It was, and Joe is not a demon. He's not a demon. So we talked about vertical farming, uh, which was really, really cool. Plants on top of each other. Plants on top of each other. And we talked about chemical, well, chemical ecology, which was just much a bigger and crazier field than I think I previously realised. You are listening to a podcast. But what is that podcast? It's the science of feeding the world. Welcome to this week's episode of Science of Feeding the World in Lockdown. And we are joined by Dr. Joe Roberts, who is going to talk to us about whether or not vertical farming is good. Uh, I'm also joined by... Alex, I love the way that you have taken the planned introduction and just flipped it on its head. Um, the thing is, the thing is, I'm a jazz sort of person, so it's all freeform, you know? <laughs> freeform lockdown podcast. Well, I'm Hannah McGrath. Great. And I'm Gary Froon. I don't think I said I'm Alex. Hi, I'm Alex. <laughs> Joe. Hello. Is vertical farming good? Depends uh, on your perspective. If you're a vertical farmer, probably. If you're a consumer, probably not yet, but it could be. Okay. Oh, that's an interesting answer to unpack. Um, so what uh, is we vertical into farming? Yeah, yeah. Like, Let's go there. Start with the there. basics so someone like me can understand. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so vertical farming is really a very broad definition of a lot of different farming types. Um, Generally, they're all indoor. uh, So it's sort of very similar to protected um, horticulture or whatever. So you you grow your crops indoors, basically. But the sort of difference between vertical farming and a classical sort of greenhouse environment is that you generally have multiple layers of crops stacked like one on top of each other. and that's basically the main difference. It's, it's not actually that dissimilar to just traditional greenhouse growing, to be honest. So all those people okay. kind of like, uh, it's, it's not, I'm not throwing shade at them, but I kind of am. Um, all those people <laughs> who are kind of like, oh my God, vertical farming, the solution of all of our needs. Um, yeah. Does that kind of actually, sort of what you're saying is actually the technologies that it's based on have been around for a little bit and what we're talking about is refining and taking them a bit further yeah i mean the problem with vertical farming is it's sort of been a bit of a victim of hype in some respects Mm. so the technology is you know reasonably well established um but it's not being really sort of used to its full potential i don't believe so there are a very limited number of crops you can grow in vertical farming systems. Can you, what, like, like what? Uh, at the moment, it's predominantly sort of leafy green salad vegetables. Um, as far as I know, that's the only yeah. sort of real crops being produced on any commercial scale. Uh, I mean, obviously, the systems could be modified to grow other crops, but for whatever reason, they don't appear to have been. So I'm going to blow everyone okay. out of the water here because... I have been to a vertical farm, technically. No. Yeah. Except it wasn't very glamorous. (laughs) 
know. <laughs> <laughs> well, what were they growing in their vertical farm? So they, this was a, a lettuce farmer near mm-hmm. Wellsbourne over in kind of Warwickshire. Um, and yeah. that was, it, it was vertical farming. Like it was plants of lettuce kind of growing out of hydroponic pot things that have been stacked on top of each other for the sake of the listeners at home i'm now acting out what it looks like on camera (laughs) (laughs) which obviously isn't translating to you at all but yeah i definitely think sometimes the reality of stuff like vertical farming doesn't look as good as the nice shiny led photos that they use on like the promo Mm. material type stuff was it kind of a really sci-fi build how many floors did it have it was basically like a big tent like a big marquee, oh, wow. because okay. that's the thing. Yes, is, that's... Like because you can stack it, your footprint in terms of the area that it covers is a lot smaller, right? Yeah, that's the sort of main idea behind it, isn't it? You know, the idea I think is that uh, vertical farming is something that they really want to incorporate into urban settings. So you have mm. the sort of farms in the city, that sort of thing. Have them on top of your supermarkets, reducing the distance between the farm and the and the supermarket, for example. But as far so as, good... I, don't, I don't know if that actually is the reality yet. I, I've not, a, I've certainly not seen it. Yeah, It's a good question then perhaps to go into, which is why you say it's a victim of hype. Why is that? What What is vertical farming kind of claiming to do? What are the benefits that are being purported? Oh, well, I mean, there's a whole sort of range of benefits that, are, that people say vertical farming has over conventional farming systems. One of the biggest ones uh, that I've sort of been involved with is... You don't have pests or diseases in these in these systems, so therefore you don't have to apply pesticides or anything like that, which uh, clearly isn't the case uh, because traditional farming in greenhouses gets uh, yeah. Pests, so why wouldn't a yeah. vertical farm? Is yeah. there the concern as well that if you have them in this very closed system like this, this vertical farms, you kind of reduce the the um, variation, you reduce the ability to deal with a disease or a pest. Oh, well, that, that's, that's the whole thing because, I mean, from my experience, a lot of vertical farming um, companies and people who do research on it say that actually it's not an issue. So we've not really done any research on vertical farming and how pests and diseases move through these systems. So there's mm. a lot of unknowns. Um, okay. And I think there's a lot of potential for... Yeah new avenues of research to really sort of take off around this vertical farming because if people want it to replace certain aspects of conventional farming then these are all big questions we need to answer really do we think vertical farming can help us to kind of tackle some of the impacts of climate change is that you know i see you know in terms of more food per unit of land allowing reducing food miles by allowing food to be grown into the in the cities uh, is that kind of one of the 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 kind of reasons people are behind it i think there's a there's an aspect of that i I certainly i think you know there's a whole sort of if you can bring your food closer to the supermarket clearly you're going to be cutting out some of the uh the middlemen some of the transport some of the carbon from from this sort of aspect of it so i think there's definitely an environmental aspect to it but um yeah like i said i don't it's not the industry hasn't really gotten big enough for us to really understand this yet i don't think mm. okay or the full the full saw, impact of it anyway certainly i saw in uh, i was reading on wikipedia i was looking at vertical farms and it kind of says the history in in the history on wikipedia it says it starts in 1999 when somebody posed it but i think in your in the paper that you'd sent over you say it goes back to the early 20th century so what 
early early 1900s? Well, I mean, what, what were those kind of examples? I mean, you know, vertical farming. If you believe in the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, uh, oh, which, okay, which yeah, some people yeah. do, some people don't. <laughs> you know, essentially that is a vertical farm. You know, they're growing vegetables in stacks um, and well, plants in stacks. I mean, there's a big long history of uh, vertical farming. Maybe not as technologically advanced with LED lighting and heating and that sort of environmental control, but it, as a concept, it's not particularly new. Yeah, well, I'd never thought of the the gardens of Babylon as being, being that's a really cool idea. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. uh, it's an interesting idea. It's one of uh, one of the co-authors, uh, Toby Bruce, suggested actually. So um, yeah. it's it's an interesting thought if you think about the hard, uh, the hanging gardens of Babylon in that in that in that mm-hmm. way. I find it quite interesting in agriculture at the moment is there's like this kind of big shift with farming to almost like go back to our roots, if that makes sense. I know it sounds a bit punny, but Mm. actually a lot of the kind of like really new shiny things that we're trying to do are actually things that we used to do. So something like more crop rotation to help the soil heal is something that they would have done anyway. And this kind of idea of vertical farming, if you're talking about like the hanging gardens of babylon you know it's, it's 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 over and over again is that i think we're very good at like taking what we did but just making it look new and shiny with some led lights or something yeah. <laughs> i think yeah no i think i would agree with that i mean you know there seems to be with uh everything there's waves isn't there of what's fashionable and what's you know what people are trying to do so i think agriculture yeah. isn't uh immune from that it's kind of like um disney doing all the live remakes of their animated classics exactly <laughs> Yeah, Yeah. it's Lion King again, but this time they're more 3D (laughs) and more sinister because they're talking Mm. uh, lions that look real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Didn't stop me napping through it. (laughs) (laughs) And then, as far as I remember, you going, "What, Mufasa died?" (laughs) Yeah, that (laughs) did happen. Someone told me. Actually, it was Laura James who told me. One of our uh, friend of the podcast friend of friend of the podcast exactly she told me that Mufasa didn't die and then <laughs> I was like oh my god have they actually changed Lion King and then I went in and kind of sleep and woke up and he was dead and I was like wait what <laughs> <laughs> I'm a nightmare to go to the cinema with uh, where, how many are there are lots of vertical farms around are there any in the UK well Hannah you said you'd visited one but how big and extravagant do they get are they are there big ones um, with many floors and futuristic looking buildings <laughs> there are there aren't a huge number in the UK um, there predominantly seem to be sort of in Japan and mm. parts of Asia there's a few in, few in the US um, but there are there are some in the UK uh, there's the only really sort of large commercial one that I know of personally is based in Bristol or just outside Bristol um, so yeah I mean they they are around um, but like yeah. I say I mean you know they're not there aren't as many of them as perhaps you might think what are the reasons that there aren't as many as you might think I guess primarily it's just a high investment cost they cost a lot of money to set up um, and you know I think at the moment there's a lot of money to invest into something that you can't grow a huge variety of crops with. So some people see it as potentially mm. a bit of a risk, perhaps. I don't know. Mm. That's just my take on it. I can't, I can't really speak for uh, any of the companies, but that's that's my understanding. You know, expensive to set up, and you can't grow a huge number of crops at the moment. So where does this? Mm. Where does Japan fit into this? Where? What? Wait, what? Why have they got the uh, the edge on us? 
Uh, that I don't know. All I know uh, about Japan really is that they don't. Japan are a bit strange, so they don't call vertical farms vertical farms. They call them plant factories. Whoa! So they have a bit of okay. they have a bit of yeah. a different name for uh, for for what we would call vertical farming. And actually, it's very difficult to find out or make comparisons between the two because um, you know uh, vertical farming and plant factories have very different names for what mm. is essentially the same thing. Um, quite why they have more, I, I can't. I could not tell you. I guess perhaps just because. You know, some of the companies that make the LED lights are based in Japan, so maybe they have cheaper access to some of the materials. Again, that's just a guess. I'm not. One of the things that I think is quite interesting about vertical farming or perhaps more urban farming is the idea that it can help bring food closer to the people who eat it. So perhaps I know in somewhere like Singapore, they have very low, the kind of fancy name is like food sovereignty or like uh, their own self-sufficiency. They grow very little of their own food. And so I can imagine Mm. that in a very kind of urban area, if you can bring that back, it can be quite important. And one of the cool things I remember learning when I did my master's was about Cuba. So in Cuba, they were very reliant on Russia for their fuel, for their tractors and agricultural machinery. And then with the fall of the Soviet, um, I was going to call it the Soviet Empire. I don't mean that. I mean the Soviet Union. <laughs> um, with the fall of the Soviet Union, it meant that obviously Russia wasn't giving Cuba loads of fuel anymore. So that meant that there was this massive crash in Cuban farming. And lots of people turned to kind of urban vertical farming where they were all kind of growing vegetables in boxes on their windows and stuff like that. Um, and I think it's quite interesting how you could bring vertical farming into people's lives i've seen these ideas of people having like boxes that are a bit like a fridge that you have in your own house which you would grow kind of maybe your lettuce or your spinaches or your herbs or something Mm. um and i quite Mm. like the idea of those kind of bringing so ikea sells something very similar at the moment so i was in ikea just before the lockdown uh happened and you can buy basically little units or you can grow stacks of vegetables in your kitchen comes with led lights water oh, nutrients wow. the whole setup i don't know how effective they are but you know this sort of want for growing your own uh produce in, in your home seems to uh have been captured by ikea so they sell little setups to do this obviously not on a, on a big scale but the technology is out there in people's homes i guess i suppose it implies people are thinking about these things aren't they people are it's almost becoming desirable then well, I mean, this, I think um, what this lockdown has shown uh, is a lot of people are investing in their own gardens at the moment. Mm. I've seen a lot of people trying to you know, get seeds to grow their own vegetables and stuff like that. So this may be uh, something that you know continues going forward. People want to grow more of their own produce. But I mean, if we could do that on top of supermarkets with vertical farming, then you know, I think that's sort of a, a good middle ground because I don't know how sustainable everybody growing their own produces in their garden it's not as mm. certainly not as efficient yeah. as industrial agriculture so i kind of want to go back to the idea of pests in these um situations so pests within vertical mm. farms because as i understand it joe you're a insect chemical ecologist certainly am uh, so what do you think about when you think about pests in vertical farming for me, the whole thing about being a chemical ecologist and vertical farming, so I've got this sort of interest in how 
insects, well, how pest insects locate their host plants, but then as well, how predators and parasitoids uh, locate their prey uh, within these systems. Now, obviously, there's a lot of variation in these systems, and you know, some of them actually have rotating plants, some of them have static systems. So, so the the kind of the vertical farm itself would move around. Is that what you mean by the rotating bits? Rotating, yeah. So you have like these big, tall um, stacks. The one that I've seen is about fifteen rows high, so it's probably about five meters tall, something like that. And it's on basically a conveyor belt. So the plants are just constantly rotating to ensure that they get various light and things mm. like that. Um, I don't know how common those particular systems are because I understand they're very expensive purely because of all the extra mechanical components you need to make them rotate and things like that and the maintenance. But if you've got a constantly moving system, does that, A, help the pests disperse within these systems and B, confuse the uh, predators or parasitoids from finding their their prey in these systems that that's my real interest so two quite basic stupid questions then how do pests get in there because if it's a closed system like where are they coming in from and the second thing would then be how would the predators or the parasitoid wasp that you could put in that would lay their little eggs in the in the pest how would they get in to answer the first question the pests i mean how does the pest get in any closed environment i guess um i would assume that a lot of these systems have workers going in and out so they must be going through doors on their clothes things like that um through filtration systems air vents that sort of thing sort of all the tradition don't they they find a way yeah they always find a way i mean if you think if you think about something like um Western flower thrips or two-spotted spider mite. Incredibly small. We're talking, you know, half a millimetre for spider mite, for, for example. You know, there's very few meshing systems available that would stop that getting into an air vent and then into your crop. Um, so I think, you know, all the standard ways that uh, pests get into glass houses and greenhouses would be completely viable for uh, vertical farms as well. I guess this would be worse, would it, for things like fungal spores and things that could be carried in on what on people's shoes and then blown around. Oh, and exactly. Yeah. In, yeah. Fungal spores could even come in through the water supply. I mean, there's a whole host. Fungal spores is another, a whole other ballgame, I guess, really, because there's almost unlimited ways they can come into your systems. And once they're in there, they're very difficult to control. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then the second question was about how you get the sort of beneficial insects, the predators and the parasitoids. Well, there's a lot of um, biological control companies that sell these to growers anyway. And uh, they generally come in sachets or in vermiculite or something. And you can blow them around on your crop using uh, sort of a reverse leaf blower. So you can... I love this idea. Yeah. A so... little pack of parasitoid wasps or something. Yeah. In a sachet. Exactly. Yeah. So you, <laughs> you just buy a little sachet of your uh, beneficial. And generally, people just go around and hang them on the, um, on the plants. And you, you know, they just go about their business. And that's, I, the, and that's a system used in regular glass houses already. Mm. You said um, you said that the system that rotates could make it hard then for the beneficial insects to find their prey, the pests that they feed on. Why is that? How do they normally find their prey in, uh, in the wild and why is that different? Yeah, so um, if we think about a parasitoid wasp, for example, 
there's a couple of ways in which they locate their sort of their host uh, aphid, for example. Um, sort of the, the, the main two ways are through visual cues, so plant color. Um, and then the second one is through, um, you know, olfactory cues, smell essentially. So if you've got this constantly rotating um, shelving unit, you're disrupting the airflow and really making these odor plumes very difficult because they are wafting all over the place. And you know, so as your... sorry to interrupt you, just just so I That's can right. get the the baseline in my head. So as I understand yep. it, if you're talking about a normal outdoor field, the parasitic mm-hmm. wasp would be flying along, and then it would go like, oh, there's a really bright green field that means something's well they maybe they're not necessarily going that means something's growing but it would kind of have mm-hmm. a response to go towards the bright green field with loads of stuff going on and then exactly. as it would get closer you would then get the smell of well the volatiles being given off perhaps as the plants getting eaten or defense mechanisms or something like that that the the parasitic wasp would maybe respond to exactly yeah so paras- parasitoid wasps are highly tuned um, in their olfactory responses. So they can differentiate between infested plants and uninfested plants um, just from differences in like uh, a few chemical compounds. Is that why their antennae are so long? Um, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm guessing, you know, the longer your antenna, the more sensitivity you have. So you probably are more uh, highly tuned for picking up these minuscule differences. But um yeah, they're basically using these differences in chemical profiles to locate potential uh, plants where their hosts may be. Okay, so that's how it would be kind of normally outside. And then you're saying because yeah. the air is being filtered and pushed around in huge vents and stuff, that could yeah. then confuse the wasps because their sat yeah, so doesn't work. Exactly, yeah. So the, so the um, well, yeah, there's two angles here, I guess. There's that one, the odour plume plumes are being disrupted and distorted by these different systems but then you also have the uh, plant that's constantly moving so in the wild in a field your plant doesn't move does it it stays stays where it is basically mm. but if you've got a constantly moving plant and constantly moving aphid then uh how do they that's find funny because the topic of the topic of uh, plants not being able to run away has come up several times on this podcast <laughs> and now we're actually talking about plants that could in theory you know kind of run away in a strange sense yeah um, i mean it, constantly yeah. on the move yeah there's quite a bit of a limited uh a limited <laughs> area to which they can move i guess it's a bit running around a field track it's just a big oval like, essentially. yeah you wait till you know the future but we'll have them on little drones flying <laughs> around the place it'll be like yeah <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that drones actually—that's interesting. You say drones because drones are another way that's becoming very popular to um, distribute beneficial insects. So people are loading oh, up wow. drones full of, you know, uh, predatory mites, parasitoids, ladybirds, whatever, flying around so their is, crop and just doing drop-offs. This is where you've got like a um, Saving Private Ryan scene of the, <laughs> the dropships coming in and yeah, all the beneficial yeah. insects running out. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Or like these planes that drop water on forest fires. Yeah. And now they're carrying. Same concept. Oh, yeah. Right. It's apparently it's really really popular uh, in Brazil. And it's really um, I know some growers doing it in Kenya. And one of the interesting oh, okay. things mm. is that basically along the journey of like development of agriculture in somewhere like the UK or um, I don't know Australia or america it was kind of like very machinery intensive and then with all of the machinery you get loads of issues with like fuel use and obviously then there's emissions from that but also things like soil health and 
it's like very dis- like disturbance on the ground becomes a massive problem that we've got in the UK at the moment. And then we're now kind of going to this of like, we should be not plowing our land so much. It's kind of like this journey. Whereas in somewhere like Kenya, the growers who are using drones to, they kind of have them in like little pellets that they throw the wasps out in. Um, and then the pellet breaks down and the wasp comes out. Um, but they have like completely avoided this soil health issue because they're not driving the huge tractors around. They're just releasing mm. the kind of, because it's a drone, it doesn't have any of the soil health issues. And it's really cool the way that you can just like jump, leap over all of this history of like plowing and all of the big heavy machinery that we've got by going, well, let's just put them in a drone. Uh, it's incredibly clever and i think that um some of the biggest advances are actually happening in africa in agriculture where they Mm. don't necessarily have all of the burdens of uh tradition and conventional ways of doing it but we've 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 currently got in europe and the rest of the world i think you know there's a and they're big on technology is what i get from whenever i've been there so I had a really naive thought when you started saying, looking at pests in vertical farming systems, I was like, oh, well, that must be easier because the pest can't run away. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I can see why maybe as a scientist from you wanting work to be successful, that doing it indoors mm. would be more difficult. So this idea of moving the pests or that you're not deliberately moving the pests around but as the plants are progressing around and the the plumes are moving are there ways are we kind of looking at the effect of those changes on the parasitic wasps or is that research that's just too difficult to do right now i mean the the harsh reality is there is zero research on vertical farms and pests and uh diseases nothing um so the idea of our paper that we published was basically to highlight, actually, these are considerations that vertical farmers should be thinking about, um, really. And actually, it's sort of a bit of a shame because it's so difficult to get funding to do this type of research because on one hand, you've got vertical farms saying there's no issue, this, is, this isn't a problem. Uh, and then on the other hand, you clearly must have some issues, but there's no funding there to... Mm to do the research so actually there's a lot of unanswered questions here um anyone who wants to fund it... joe to do the research he's wow. contactable by a twitter <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah that'd be the dream but yeah, it's yeah. uh yeah, yeah i don't know it's a very difficult difficult situation because you don't want to be a naysayer of a new technology but you also want to highlight some important considerations mm. there you know, From what you've already done and what you already understand it are you do you think it's going to be very very different to the way that pests are managed on farms, you know, using spraying with pesticides, um, using biocontrol or push-pull method. Do you think it's going to be very different and those methods aren't going to work? I don't think it will be different. I think they will probably need to be adapted slightly. So the whole sort of ethos for a lot of vertical farms is actually they don't use pesticides because they don't have these issues. So Mm. my take on it is they probably would prefer not to go down that route anyway. So it's all about adapting how you can use biocontrol in these in these setups more effectively because if you have the different layers different rotation different things like that it's um it could change the way you have to uh, apply your biocontrols so it's looking about optimizing the system i guess we've spoken a little bit about the um insect pests and beneficials and things but if you've got all these plants and you're growing them from scratch in a vertical farm 
Mm-hmm. I'm setting this up like a really stupid question so you can knock it out of the park. <laughs> How would you pollinate those plants then, things that were insect pollinated? Okay, so I guess, really, it's not much different from a traditional greenhouse um, setup where you buy, you just buy in your uh, your pop- bumblebee pollinators. Um, a lot a of, box of bees? Yeah, your box of bees. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with them. You've probably seen them when you were at Harper Adams. There's a fair mm, few yes. projects. Shout, shout out to Harper Adams. Oh, well, yeah. No, but it's, uh, you know, it's you can buy boxes of bees, basically, uh, bumblebees as, as pollinators. So I imagine uh, those would be able to be, you know, implemented into a vertical farming system. You know, they can fly. They're, they're, pretty, they're pretty mobile. So I suspect that would be okay. So you can essentially buy in your own task force of insects for these things. You've got your pollinators in a box. You've got your little sachets of parasitoids and predators there's even bee doctors out there i've seen um there's a company developing um systems where you have your pollinators going in and out of your uh, little bee box and as they pass through they put on entomal pathogens or you know various other things and they medicate the crop and things like that as they're flying around wow uh (laughs) yeah it's uh, it's a reasonably uh recent thing that i've seen that's sort of being developed it looks quite interesting i don't know how uh, effective it is i haven't seen any any uh, hard data on it, but it looks pretty cool. It sounds really cool. That's what matters. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it maybe cool. I should be doing vertical farming. I don't know. Uh, maybe that's what I'm going to do next. <laughs> I'll, I'll get bored of carrots and, and go into to vertical farming. Bored of carrots? Never thought I'd hear that. <laughs> <laughs> she says with a carrot mug in her hand. Jerry <laughs> says this. Anna says that. I've really been enjoying this chat, but I think we should move on to the next section now. Thanks. I'd like to talk more about, I don't know maybe if this will work or not, but this kind of idea of insect finding, if that makes sense. Because I think that's something you know a bit about, Joe. Uh, supposedly. Supposedly. <laughs> so <laughs> what are your actual, like, so when you start talking about insect finding or insect uh, or what was it? Uh, host location or something? Um, yeah. What are your kind of qualifications in that? Because I, I like I don't mean that in <laughs> a joke. like sassy way. I mean it in a like because I don't I've I've seen you on Twitter, but I don't think you've ever actually met in person that I can remember. So no, I don't think so. I think I've only ever met Alex uh, out of this group that's here today. So what what did you like do your PhD on? Where did you do your PhD? That kind of stuff. Okay, cool. So um, weirdly. I'm not from an entomology background whatsoever. I did an undergraduate and a master's degree in forensic uh, science, basically. Okay. And when I was doing that, I became very, very interested in the use of insects to determine how long somebody has been dead for, essentially. I've seen this research. Yeah, yeah. post-mortem intervals. So that's where I, that's how I became interested, really, in insects. Um I got to the end of my master's and I was looking for a PhD uh, because I've always enjoyed the research aspect of of, um, university. And I realised there isn't a huge call for forensic entomologists (laughs) for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe that's a good thing, if I'm honest. (laughs) Yeah, probably, yeah. So um, I did a bit of research on the chemistry and cuticular hydrocarbons Whoa, 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 whoa. What's that? Jargon buzzer. <laughs> <laughs> so what are... Cuti- you say cuticular... Cuticular hydrocarbons. hydrocarbons. So they are 
long, complicated, non-volatile chemicals that are basically on the surface of insects have a whole host of functions. Uh, they can be um, communication tools in social insects like ants and termites, um, but they also provide things like waterproofing and stuff like that for, for insects. Um, so they're quite cool. And I was using that to determine if you could identify accelerants from blowflies that have been on bodies that have been burnt so you could identify what fuel was used to burn the body. Um, so that's how I became interested in insects and sort of chemistry. Right. Got to the end of my master's, realised there's no, no PhD in that. So I, I took a punt and switched to um, sort of agricultural entomology. So I then moved to Harper Adams University um, to do a PhD in chemical ecology on predatory mites. Um, and I was looking at you know, how can I manipulate their chemical ecology to make them feed on non-natural diets to improve uh, mass rearing, basically. So these predatory mites are mites that mm -hmm. you would use, like we were talking about in the vertical farming, that you would use that they come in like little sachets or pots or something and you would put them into a system. Exactly, yeah. And so basically, well, sorry, carry on. And I was going to say, so you were talking about mass rearing, but mass rearing mm -hmm. of what? Okay, so you're right, those predatory mites are the, the good guys you want in your crop to eat uh, other mites, basically, or thrips. Um, my whole project was looking sort of at, there's this particular predatory mite called Phytosulus persimilis. It's a very selective feeder. It will only feed on one species of um, mite that lives on a plant called the two-spotted spider mite. Um, this is an issue for manufacturers of the predatory mite, primarily because it's very expensive to rear it because you need to grow plants, rear the prey mite, and then rear your predator on, on the prey. So I was reading very... about this the other day. So this is... Really? Yeah. I'm, I'm weird. Okay, let's go with it. <laughs> but they were saying that uh, so I was reading about this use of kind of beneficials in kind of farming and they were saying that it's really hard to commercialize or make money off of actually growing the kind of the 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 predators that you want because you have to mm -hmm. grow the pest yeah but you can't make money from selling the pest Exactly, yeah. That's a, my, my whole PhD was looking at, can you cut out the middleman of having the pest in the plants and just rear the, the predatory mite on an artificial diet? Whoa! Now, because, it, because it's a selective feeder, it won't eat anything other than the prey. So we were looking at manipulating um, its behaviour through you know, particular hydrocarbons, chemical cues, to see if we can convince it to feed on, to, on something else, basically. Does it work? Because if you can make that work, uh, that's huge. It works to a certain degree. And then I got to the end of my funding and I wrote up. And I don't, and I don't, I don't, and I don't know if anybody else is continuing that research. But you're right. It's, it, it potentially could revolutionize certain areas of biocontrol companies if you can scale down your entire system to just have an artificial diet and rear some of the protein mites on this. You could make a lot of money from that. Uh, I mean, I guess I wouldn't personally because you sign over any yeah. sort of uh, intellectual property, don't you? But uh... <laughs> no, that's really interesting. 
Yeah. So I, I was working with a biocontrol company at that point during my PhD to try and help them develop this system. So it was an interesting, interesting uh, project. And, you know, that's how I became really involved in this sort of host-seeking chemical ecology, how do, how do insects communicate with the environment, that sort of thing. Three, two, one, and... It's time for the rapid-fire questions. It's time to ask some questions really, really fast. <laughs> hey, that was pretty in time. I was impressed, was it? Hey. Oh, good, thanks. Yeah, yeah, good. Beautiful. Joe. Yes. Basketball or baseball? Basketball. Stroll through a forest or a lovely day at the beach? Beach. Bowie or Prince? Bowie. Identifying brassica plants with aphid resistance by counting the number of aphids which have colonised or identifying volatile chemical profiles which promote aphid resistance? Oh, <laughs> my two loves, brassica plants. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Summer or winter? Summer. Tea or coffee? Tea. Teaching a group of master's students about the wonderful world of chemical ecology or presenting your research at a national conference? Teaching students. Lovely. Uh, green or purple? Green. Inside or outside? Outside. Tweeting about your latest paper or live tweeting a conference? Tweeting about my paper. Very egotistical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Avatar or Titanic? Avatar. Vertical farming or urban farming? Vertical farming. Uh, Gary, you had a question? I do. I, I want to know who likes insects more, you or Alex? Probably Alex, particularly <laughs> if it's flies, I imagine. Yeah, are, you still a, I imagine. are you still a fly fiend, Alex? For the most part, I'm getting into wasps at the moment, but yeah, mostly flies. <gasps> Don't tell the <laughs> flies, they'll get affected. Are you going to change your Twitter handle? We'll, we'll edit that out. <laughs> people, people won't be able to handle that. I was actually looking back the other day at a Twitter message from you, Alex, and one of the last ones you sent me before uh, talking about this podcast was, do you want me to come and sort out the fly problem in your greenhouse? What? I had some flies oh, yeah. or something in oh, my yes. greenhouse. So I think you were just going to come and hoover them up and have a look at them. Yeah. I can't remember what that was now. Yeah, no, good times. I, I can't remember, but it was a long time ago. Good times? Yeah. Really? Is that how we define good times? And this was, this was pre-lockdown, yeah? Just to clarify. This was, this was uh, back in the distant past of 2017, I'd imagine. Oh. I think it was long ago than that, wasn't it? Really? Blimey. Uh, last question then. Last film that made you cry? I genuinely don't think I've ever cried at a film. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's the first time we've had that answer on the podcast. Not even lying to I, me I, when I, we yeah. fossilise. Spoilers. No. <laughs> it's stone cold. <laughs> wow. That's blown Alex out of the water. <laughs> I've got nothing, yeah. I've got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> in the rapid fire questions you were talking then about twitter or we brought twitter up mm. and not only is this an opportunity for you to plug yourself if you want more followers but you've already got quite a lot of followers how do you yeah i don't know how do you use so you use twitter quite a lot i assume mm -hmm. well uh more than is probably um healthy yes so why do you use it does it help your work what do you share on it why do you share that stuff expand mm. i predominantly use twitter to interact with fellow scientists 
growers and sometimes the public. I think you, there is a tendency to get caught up in your own little bubble, though, sometimes, and you don't, you yeah. know, you sort of shouting into a bit of an echo chamber if you're only followed by scientists. Um, but I use it predominantly just to communicate things that I find interesting. So if I find an interesting paper, like the one I was talking about earlier with the strawberries um, and the herbivore damage making taste nicer, I'll tweet stuff like that. Um, I use it to follow conferences if I can't go to a conference, that sort of thing. And just to sort of engage with the wider entomology community. So the UK has a pretty healthy community of entomologists, but uh, you know, globally there's, there's a huge number of, of entomologists I like to interact with uh, people I wouldn't normally get the chance to interact with. So you post, I like following you because you mm. post interesting papers and for me, sometimes if I'm like, I should be doing work, but I can't, you know, life. But then you pop up on yeah. Twitter and then I'm like, oh, I'll click that. And then that's work. Um, do you read every paper you share? Pretty much. Wow. Sometimes I'll only read the bits that I find interesting. Yeah. So I maybe will only read, you know, the introduction results and discussion. Yeah. But generally speaking, I read 75% of every paper. That's mm. mad that you read that much do you find that how do you find the time to read that much or do you just read quickly uh i read quickly but i also make the time to read that much uh -huh. so i you know i will give myself i don't know an hour and a half a day to read things oh. and generally most of the most of the papers that i i post are generally quite short yeah i try to avoid review articles if possible because uh they're generally longer um, and you know you can't get to the meat of it as quick. So you spend an hour and a half every day reading. Generally, yeah. Sometimes it can be more, sometimes less. Yeah, that's mad. So I do a lot of this. Well, most of my most of my tweeting is sort of between uh, you know paper stuff is usually between six and half seven in the morning. Okay. So that's when I do a lot of this sort of stuff. Wow. Which isn't a good habit to get into. I don't advocate waking up that early to do uh, work. <laughs> Whatever. Particularly if you're a PhD student. <laughs> I think getting me to do work would be an achievement at this point. <laughs> I mean, there, there, is a, there is a discussion to be had around a healthy work-life balance. Yeah. Mm. I think and, you know, sometimes I probably tip closer towards work than I do uh, life. I mean, I'd say Twitter is about 90% of what I do. <laughs> <laughs> But don't tell my I was going to say, for the sake of your next progress report <laughs> review thing, we'll, we'll edit that out. Well, weirdly, actually, you say that, but uh, Twitter has become um, one of the things they like to see people do. You know, they like to see people engaging with the wider community about what what I get up to and, you know, advertising the place where I work and that sort of thing. So it's, it's, I think they see it as an effective tool. I'm so glad you say that because I do get quite... It's not abuse. It's, it's, it's good-natured abuse, but I do get quite a lot of stick for tweeting about stuff. And it's kind of like... Really? Yeah. But it gets me, like, conference invites. It gets me growers message me, you know, like, we've got this problem. What do you think we should do? Or, like, articles, invitations to write articles and that kind of stuff. So I think it is, like... Well, yeah. Alex likes it too. Gary's just the only one who, I suppose it's too much like work for Gary to enjoy it. But um. <laughs> well, I think, you know, there is some real benefits to having uh, a Twitter account. You know, the amount of opportunities that have come my way that I probably wouldn't have had if I mm. didn't have a Twitter account. Um, 
you know, it's crazy. You know, invitations to it's write really, papers, you know, speak. You know, it's, it's interesting, actually, because so, Joe, I work in the communications department of Rotham said and so we kind of have these sorts of discussions quite a lot mm. uh, and in yesterday's team meeting you know we're, we're now trying to find a way to get scientists to engage more and one of the big questions and this is absent from even a lot of the literature on science communication is what's really in it uh-huh. for scientists especially now with some of the, the grants are moving away from having um, an actual outreach section uh, to expect you to kind of fit it you know, thread it through the whole, weave it through the whole story of, you know, what you're proposing. Yeah. Um, so in terms of benefits, that's really, it's really interesting to hear you talk about opportunities coming your way. Yeah. Um, you know, getting papers out there. I think there's a lot of um, personal benefits to having Twitter, a, a lot of personal benefits. Um, you know, I've worked with people in the United States and Australia that I would never have had any interaction with if it wasn't for Twitter. So I think, you know, yeah. it can do a lot of good for your career. But again, you have to balance it on how much time do you spend uh, on Twitter. Mindlessly scrolling and mm. shouting into the void, you mean? Oh, well, I mean, yeah, there is that. If you can limit that and shout when you've got something useful to say and scroll when you're, you know, needing to scroll. Yeah, I mean, but the, the scrolling part there is the best bit because that's when you find all the interesting stuff. True. Yeah, mm. uh, yeah I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm biased because I, I love Twitter, but, you know. <laughs> can we get that on the merch please Gary can we get like a little, <laughs> like I love Twitter <laughs> I'd appreciate that only the thousand most commonly used English words the thing explainer this is the thing explainer this is called the thing explainer Joe yes please consult the thousand words we have got for you yeah this is the part of the podcast where we all will take it in turns to describe the science that Joe has spoken to us about over the course of this episode. So we're going to use only the 1000 most commonly used English words. Uh Joe's going to show us how it's done first and then we're going to have a go as well. And then we're going to see how good we are at describing this science. So let's have a quick quicker break to have a look over these words and come up with a sentence. I can give you a spoiler and confirm that I'm terrible at this. So, Joe, yeah. sum, sum it up for us. What's your sentence? Animal behaviour and plant defence. That's basically what? it. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. I got growing plants on top of each other and understanding what eats them. Which yeah, is what? Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah, but you always sound smarter than I do. <laughs> it's, I think it's conviction. You just got to believe <laughs> that you're right. <laughs> Gary, what have we got? I got from studying six-legged things on dead bodies to studying six-legged things in fields and plants. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty good going. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> I've had to, I've had to make some concessions with mine, which I'm not happy about. See if you can spot them. Uh, can up food growth, plant stuff, and be doctors change the world? <laughs> be doctors, yeah. Oh, I'm glad you got be doctors in there. But you used the wrong B, yeah. though, right? I assume it was B. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, I don't think that counts. <laughs> oh, flies in there. Could have had flies on dead bodies. That would have worked. Ah. Yeah. Oh well, next time. Oh well, next time. <laughs> right. Well, I think we've covered pretty much everything 
possible to cover in the whole world there. So, Joe, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, it's been fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Joe, I really yeah. enjoyed it. I didn't, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. That you... Didn't think you would enjoy no. it. No. <laughs> I should have anticipated that someone whose Twitter I enjoy so much is interesting to talk to. I think that's what I've learned from today. <laughs> thank you very much. Great. <laughs> There we go. So that's goodbye from me, Alex Dye. Bye from And me, Gary Fruid. We're talking over each other. This is lockdown times, lockdown life. Um, I'm Hannah. Goodbye from Hannah. (laughs) Goodbye from Hannah. Goodbye from Hannah, everyone. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) I'll sod off. Thanks for listening to the Science of Feeding the World podcast. We would like it very much if you would like, subscribe and share. And if you want to get in touch, you can get us on Twitter at SFDW Podcast. Or if you just search for the Science of Feeding the World on Instagram or Facebook, you'll get us there as well. <laughs>